You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles out in whatever form they're in and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're looking at verses 23 to verse 1 of chapter 11 today as we continue on in this series on Paul's letter, his first letter to this church, or at least the first letter that we have in written form. Um, before we start going through things, I want to pray, pray with you, pray for you, pray for our time together. And I want to do this by just reading a text that Nicole, my wife, sent me last Saturday, or Sunday, excuse me, before... I preached up at Praxis. She's, a, she's a, a lovely woman of God and loves the Word. And she sent me the following uh, text that, uh, uh, that I would like to make our prayer as we go into our passage. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Amen. Uh, great text today. It's a, it's a passage um, that contains in it the answer to one of life's most critical questions. And that critical question is, why am I here? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? Uh, it's a question that any serious person living here on planet Earth need, need to consider at some point in their life. Why do we exist? The answer shows up in our text in verse 31. I'll put it on the screen behind me. But Paul writes, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So why do we exist? We exist for his glory with everything we do pointing to him. Um, in the mid-17th century, so going back a, a few hundred years, over that actually, um, something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written. It was written really to find common ground between the church in England and the church in Scotland. Catechism is just a fancy Latin word. Catechisma is just a fan, or catechesis, excuse me, is just a, it's a Latin word that simply speaks of Christian teaching. And what the Westminster Catechism has contained in it is 107 questions and 107 answers. And the, probably the most famous question is, what is the chief end of man? Man meaning mankind, humanity. What is the chief end? Why do we exist? The answer it gives is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Obviously taken from texts like the one we're going to look at today. But what does it mean to glorify God? Well, the word glory, as some of you may know, is the word doxa in Greek, and it quite literally speaks of weight or heaviness. It has the idea of opinion in it or, or greatness in it. And so to bring God glory is to live in such a way that the weight and the greatness of God would be made known by everything we do. And through everything we do, whatever you do, make God looking, look good while you do it. The opposite of glory is the word reproach. Reproach is to live in a way that makes God look bad. Elders, for example, are called to live above reproach. 
the motivation to bring God glory and the call to bring God glory in all things runs from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. But just if you want to laser in at the and look at the New Testament, we see example and example and example over again. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul instructs younger widows to get remarried if they can, that it's not good to just sit around and do nothing and be supported by your family or supported by the church because that could, can lead to all sorts of bad decisions. Instead, he writes, live in a way that gives the adversary no occasion for slander. Meaning, look at how they're living. They call themselves a follower of Jesus. Look how they're living. In, in the next chapter, same book, 1 Timothy 6, he gives instructions to employees, writing that they should honor their bosses so that the name of God and the teaching, the teaching of God, may not be reviled. He says the same thing to bosses. Treat your employees in such a way that the name of God may not be reviled. In Romans 2, Paul is um, writing there specifically to the religious, Jewish religious establishment, and he's hammering them for teaching one thing and living another. And then he says this in verse 24 of Romans 2, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Meaning reproach is taking place. Not glory, because you're saying this and living this way. This is why, going back to the qualifications of elders, that they be well thought of by outsiders. So even though maybe the outsider doesn't believe what you believe, at least if you say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they look at your life and they go, well, I may not believe in Jesus, but he looks pretty good on you. That's to live to the glory of God. We'll come back to this topic in a bit. Um, again, as we get to verse 31. But let's go to our text um, and walk through it together. It's, it's a passage that ends Paul's, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul's three-chapter focus on the topic of Christian liberty. If you feel like, man, we've been in this topic for a long time. Well, that's because we've been in this topic for a long time. Three, three chapters, two months worth of time spent in it. If you are newer to this ministry, Christian liberty really just speaks of the, the question of how should a Christian live? How, how should a Christian live and act and participate in things that the Bible doesn't speak specifically about? Uh, in the context of today's passage, how do we bring God most glory in our use of our Christian liberty or freedom? Uh, as you know, the context of this discussion over the last three chapters is most of all focused on meat offered to idols. That's not a thing today, at least in the West. But also drinking alcohol is something that Paul addressed under the umbrella of this topic of Christian liberty. But there are other things, and we've talked about that. But that, as I talk about today, as I bring up meat again, and you're newer to the ministry, and you're wondering, what are you talking about? People offered meat to idols, and they would take that meat, and they would sell it in the marketplace. And so the question that the church has, Christians have, is it okay to eat that meat? Or should I pass it by? People differed. People felt the freedom to. People felt the freedom or the call, or the, or the conviction not to? So that's the question. So what Paul does in our text is he gives us five directives as we wrap up this subject today. Next week, we're going to talk about head coverings. Awesome. 
It's great, right? Gonna, I should have got a guest speaker for next week, um, not last week. So, but come on back, bring your doilies, put them on your heads. And... So five, five directives from Paul. I'll put them on the screen if you like taking notes. First, choose to build up, not tear down. Secondly, choose freedom over legalism. Third, choose others over ourself, yourself, myself. Choose God's glory over our own. And then finally, choose Jesus above all else. So let's go through, through them one at a time. Choose to build up, not tear down. That brings us to our text where I want to read with you verses 23 and 24. Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The, the word edification doesn't come up in these two verses, but its definition does. When Paul writes that we are um, to do only those things that build up, um, he says in verse 23, not all things build up. That's edification. Edification is the building up of Christian character. Edification is the building up of greater Christ-likeness in one another. We saw this idea when this whole topic began back in chapter 8, when Paul writes back in chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, it builds up. The knowledge that they have that he's speaking of there shows up here in the quotes in verse 23 when he writes, all things are lawful. They knew that. It became their go-to maxim, in fact. When they were wrestling with their Christian liberty, should I do this? Should I not do this? Their go-to was, well, all things are lawful. So let's participate. But Paul says, not all things build up. He doesn't argue against the idea of what they know, but he says there's other things that we need to take into consideration for others and ourselves. As one commentator writes, we are to seek edification, not gratification, which we see in verse 24. And so the main question shouldn't simply be, can I do this? But what impact will it have on others? What impact will it have on me if I do? Will it build them up? Will it build me up? Or will it tear them down? One of the most tragic ways we tear down is by using our freedom in a way that causes a weaker brother or sister in Christ to participate in something that goes against their conscience. Paul addresses this in Romans 14, which is essentially the same teaching, but to a different church. Not, not a coincidence, by the way, that this topic is spent uh, Paul spends a great time of, uh, on this topic in places like Corinth and Rome, where the church is in these very cosmopolitan centers, very Gentile centers. But what he writes in Romans 14 is the following. You can read this behind me. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you're not sure if you can, if you don't have the freedom, your conscience is convicting you, then don't participate. But what does that have to do with me? 
Well, what this has to do with you and me, as he writes a couple of verses earlier, is that the faith that allows someone to eat is to be kept between them and God. So don't flaunt it. Don't push it on others. Doesn't mean they may not know some things about you, but don't hammer them. Don't guilt them. Don't mock them. Don't eat that piece of meat right in front of them and cause them to do what they have no faith to do. We are free in Christ, but we are never free to harm in Christ. How do we build up? How do we edify? Well, we've seen one example already by our love. Love builds up. Love for others builds up. We saw that going back to chapter 8, but that's verse 24 again. Love seeks the good of his neighbor, who we are to love as ourselves. So love, everything is to flow from love. The aim of our charge is love. Love is our motivation. Second, by our speech. A couple of verses for you that aren't on the screen, but you can note them. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Edify them, just as you are doing. This doesn't mean that we won't have times, necessary times, where we have to speak into a person's life. We may have to correct someone. We may have to admonish someone. But our motivation is what? Building up. We want to see them grow in Christ's likeness. So we say, look, this is going on in your life. I think this is hurting you. I love you. I'm not doing this because I want to hurt you at all. I want to see you grow. So by our love, flowing into our speech, a third way. By the word. This is the word of God specifically. Acts 20, verse 32, Paul is saying his farewell to the Ephesian elders. He's talked about how he has taught them the whole counsel of God, day and night with tears, and he's about to leave, and he says this, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to edify you, build you up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. A, a fourth way, by our proclamation. So this is not just the reading of the word, the studying of the word. This is the preaching of the word, whether it happens where you preach before thousands or your CG or your Bible study or you and a buddy over coffee, where you're just speaking into each other's lives. 1 Corinthians 14.4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies, proclaims the word, builds up the church. We'll get to that in the fall. Last way that we build up is by our service. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So if you serve here, either on a Sunday or during the week or a combination thereof, and you're greeting and you're teaching and you're leading worship and you're cutting the lawn and you're doing anything and everything because of the motivation, the call to participate in this local body of Christ, you're building it up. And we build up 
by way of that service. So choose to build up, not tear down. Second, choose freedom over legalism. Verses 25 to 27. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So stop there. Uh, if you were around earlier in this series, you heard me say at some point that there is a difference between a weak brother or sister in Christ and a legalistic one. Remember that? Th there is room in the kingdom for the weak. But there is not room in the kingdom for the legalist. It's one thing to say, as a Christian, I don't feel the liberty to eat meat offered to an idol. Paul would call that person weak. There is something they don't understand that allows them or doesn't allow them to walk in that kind of freedom. And what Paul has counseled to us in, in other places is we are to help the weak. We're to come alongside of the weak. We're to build up the weak. We're to serve the weak. But it's another thing to say, I don't think you can be a Christian and eat meat offered to an idol. That's another thing entirely. That's a different gospel. And Paul would call that person a legalist. The whole book of Galatians is about that. In the context of that book, it was circumcision by, by way of the Judaizers. You can have Jesus as long as you have Jesus plus circumcision. Paul called that a different gospel. And he said, even if an angel came along and preached that gospel, don't listen to the angel. We are not to be legalists. The first group we shouldn't eat meat in front of. The second group is a group that we should fire the grill up in front of and throw some steaks down on it. And if you think that's being unkind, again, I encourage you to read the book of Galatians and, and notice how Paul, because sometimes the best thing to edify is to go, look, no, that, that's, that's, that's not coming out of weakness. That's Jesus and, and it's not Jesus and, it's Jesus alone with everything we do in response to Jesus alone being an act of worship in response to what he has done for us. And so, yes, we should do all we can not to offend the consciences of our weaker brothers and sisters, but we must be careful not to govern our whole life by way of their consciences. We should choose freedom over legalism. How does this get played out? Well, let me give you the following illustration. Let's say there is a pastor somewhere in the city of Vancouver. Pastor to church, oh, let's call it Middletown Church. <laughs> Gorgeous pastor, stunning. Hard on the eyes, he was so good looking. Let's say this pastor of this Church, totally made up story. Let's say this pastor of this church called Middletown was invited to a party full of Middletown people. Some he knew, some he didn't. And wine was being offered there. There is a good chance because this pastor of this church doesn't know everybody well that he would pass on having a glass of wine. But on the way home, he may go buy a liquor store, maybe, buy a bottle of wine, take it home, and the next night have a glass of wine over dinner with his wife, who doesn't drink at all, by the way, in this made-up story. <laughs> but if this same pastor of this 
made-up church called Middletown was invited to a house full of non-believers or believers he knew well, he would have a glass of wine, most likely. If it was offered, no questions asked. Substitute meat for wine. And that's what Paul is saying in our text. It's one thing, as we saw last week, to eat meat at a pagan festival. Paul says, don't do that. And that, that was the council of the early church, council of Acts 15. Don't do it. But if you're on your way home and you go by the market and someone is selling meat that had been offered to an idol, his counsel, buy it, eat it, enjoy it. If your conscience doesn't, conscience doesn't um, keep you from it. After all, as he says in verse 26, quoting from Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and everything that God makes is what? Good. And if you get an invite, Paul says, to a non-believer's house, and they put some, some meat down before you, eat it. Don't ask questions. If your conscience doesn't convict you and you feel freedom to eat, then eat. Don't, hear me on this, it's a serious topic. Do not give up your freedom in Christ. You have been called to freedom. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Do not allow someone to say something that's good, something which you thank God for to not be good. The only time we should give up our liberty is if it's clear that it will build up someone else. That's the only time. With the hope that by God's grace, they come to a place where they can enjoy their full liberty in Christ one day too. So choose liberty over legalism. Freedom over legalism. Next, choose others over ourself. Verses 28 to 30. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my, my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? It's a good question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay. If these verses bug you, then you're listening to me. Because they should bug you. Because it seems like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Because he's, he, see, he says, on one hand, if you're about to eat some meat and someone says, you know that meat's been offered to an idol, which would be a bummer to sit next to that guy, but it's a possibility. <laughs> Got the burger right up there like, on it. La, 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 la. I'm not listening. No, it, put it down, he says. Put it down. But then in the very next verse, he asks, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So which is it, Paul? Put the burger down? Or don't allow their conscience to determine what you do, your liberty, your, your liberty, your freedom? Well, let's tear it apart, Okay and see if we can figure this out. The first thing that jumps out, not primary, but something I don't want us to miss, is that Paul is more concerned, I hope you didn't miss it, Paul is more concerned about the edification, the building up of our weaker brother or sister in Christ than he is offending the non-Christian host. Did you see that? Because that's a possibility, right? If your host puts down a big steak in front of you, and you're about to eat it, and then you got this guy going, idle, 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 and you go, oh, excuse me, I'm pushing it back. 
can eat this. There's a possibility that you could offend your non-Christian host. And Paul says, if you have to choose between offending a Christian or a non-Christian, then take the chance and offend the non-Christian, the non-believer, which probably bugs some of you. And yet, if handled well and explained, it can also paint a, a picture of great love for your brother or sister. Like, I'm doing this because I love my brother or sister. And, and they don't, because of where they come from, they don't have this freedom. And so I'm going to, because I love them, I'm going to put it aside. I, I thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. I'm doing it for them. And you know why that's so important? Because they will know we are Christians by our love. But back to the apparent double speak of this. How are we to understand Paul's train of thought? This says one thing and it seems like he says another just a verse later. Well, he is clear on a couple of things. One, depending on the situation, we are to allow another person's conscience to determine how we live. That's clear. Paul won't eat because of the weak conscience of another brother or sister. But what he is also saying, I believe, in the flow of the text, is that he won't allow the conscience of a weaker brother or sister to determine how he lives in all situations. For, verse 29, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks. But I think he's also saying on the flip side, in the immediate of that dinner situation, why would I eat in front of my brother or sister and risk having my freedom and thankfulness denounced? So I think it's both. And so to sum it up, I would sum it up this way. To uh, allow another's conscience to determine how I live in all situations doesn't bring God glory. But eating in front of my weaker brother or sister and being denounced for it and tearing them down in the process doesn't bring God glory either. Context matters. And so when we are in the presence of a weaker brother or sister, we are to choose others over ourselves. Which leads to the fourth directive, choose God's glory over our own. Take a look at the last three verses of this chapter. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please every, everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Can I ask somebody to go turn the fans on? Would you mind doing that? Somebody just going to the lobby? Thanks, thanks, Sammy. I appreciate that. Sammy, I've never called him Sammy before in my whole entire life. <laughs> these, these three verses, summary verses of, of this summary text. So these three verses within the larger text, summary verses of the last part of this topic, this series within a series. The immediate context, obviously, is eating and drinking. 
don't need to talk about that anymore, and how we navigate the muddiness of specific situations. The word weather, you see that word weather? So weather, really important word. It suggests that you may or may not eat and drink, whether you do or don't rest on the variables, but don't miss the main thing. The main thing to keep in mind is the glory of God, not your glory, not the glory of another, the glory of God. But then he ramps up and he says, and this is where we started, do all to the glory of God. What's the purpose behind all of this? Paul gives us a fourfold purpose. Number one, that we give no offense. It's number one. You can see this in verses 32 and 33. That we give no offense. That we try to please others in everything we do. That we don't do things merely for our own benefit. And last, so that many may be saved. Did you hear what I just read? That's the purpose behind all. This is the last three chapters. This is the Coles Notes version of three chapters. I'll read it again. Give no offense. Please others in everything we do. Don't do merely things merely for our own benefit so that many may be saved. I don't know many verses that swim more against today's cultural stream than these ones. Let, let me explain it this way. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 that as we near the end of the days, people will be lovers of self. Now, you could say, well, people always have loved themselves. I agree with you. The way I read end times teaching is that it just gets worse. Every generation goes through the same thing. It just, fancy word, recapitulates. It goes backwards and it just goes, as the seals get pulled up, it's just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So people have loved themselves all the time. It just increases and increases and increases. Jesus said that we will be able to read the signs of his return. That in the same way that we can tell what the weather's going to be like tomorrow by looking at the sky tonight, we will be able to look at the signs around us and sense his return. So put it together. In, in, the, in the day of the selfie <laughs> and the selfie stick <laughs> and our dedication to self-esteem, And, and so much talk today about self-identity and doing what is best for myself. And so many Christians today believing that they can live the Christian life by themselves. Is there any doubt that we live in the last days? However long these days will last. What, what, other, what other sign do we need to see today about what tomorrow may bring? What's my point in bringing this up and turning this into an end times talk? My point in bringing this up is that these verses are so utterly backwards and upside down today. 
the purpose behind all of this? This is nuts today. To not seek self-glory, but God's? To not seek self-gratification, but the gratification for others? To not seek our benefit, but the benefit of those around us? Some we don't even know? Like I said, this is nuts. I don't, I don't know the answer to this question. You may have a better answer or better idea than me, but is it fair to say that more people in the church today struggle with the assurance and joy of their own salvation more than wanting others to be saved? I think that's true. More committed to their own liberty and freedom than giving it up for the sake of the lost and the weak? So let's not just read these verses. Let's like marinate in them a bit. When we read verses 31 to 33, do you know what these verses are for us? These are verses that call us to faith. It's a call of faith, these verses. Do we believe a life like this will be a life of fullness and satisfaction? Because this is the call And that is the promise. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Don't live to be served, but serve. But he also said, I have come to give life and life to the full. Full. Both are true. A life of self-denial will lead to a life of self-fulfillment. Do we believe that? Because that's the call of faith in this. Do I believe that? Do we believe it's more blessed to give than receive? That's a call of faith. That that a life of self-denial is better than a life of loving ourselves with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which we are not to do, by the way. We're only to love God that way. And it's out of that love that we love our neighbors as ourselves. People today love themselves with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they've got no room for God anywhere else. The sad thing is when you love yourself with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you won't love your neighbor as yourself. All of this leads to one last directive, a necessary one, because the question is, how do I do this? Right? How do I do this? How do I even want to do this? Well, take a look at verse 1 of chapter 11. The the weirdest place for a chapter break in all the Bible. It's it's a strange chapter break. Verse 1 ends Paul's thought in chapter 10. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we must. We must be imitators of Christ. For Jesus is not only our model in this. He is the one who empowers us for this. To even want to do, do this is evidence of the Spirit of Jesus in us. Like, even if you go, I, w- I want that. That's an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Because it's not natural. The natural man doesn't want this. This is a work of the Spirit to, able, to be able to do this with joy and satisfaction and fulfillment necessitates the Spirit of Jesus in us. And therefore, what's the takeaway? Choose Jesus Follow Jesus. Glorify Jesus above all else. 
And the promise is his mind, Philippians 2, his mind that is ours in Christ will become more and more ours in Christ. So we will long to give up what is rightfully ours, becoming servants, obedient if necessary to the point of death. But God, when we do that, he exalts us in the proper time. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? So those are the five directives. I need to close. I want to close in a uh, kind of a springboardy way today. I'm, I'm, I say that to you because I, I don't believe the Bible should be used to just springboard out of. I, I believe that we don't teach from the Bible, we teach the Bible. So we don't spring out of it, we apply it. So I'm always very cautious to not springboard out of a text. But I'm going to do it because I think I have biblical support and also because we're coming to the end of this two-month, three-chapter topic on Christian liberty. So I ask for your grace as I do this. But the reason why is we've been talking a lot about food and drink over the last couple of months, right? A lot. A lot of food, a lot of drink discussion. I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence, though, in view of the larger story of God. For the theme of eating and drinking is a big one in the Bible. I've talked about this before, but I go back to it again today. It's a big one in the Bible from the very beginning. God gave Adam and Eve eternal life through fruit. From the tree of life. The sin of Adam and Eve was depicted in their eating of fruit. When the nation of Israel was going through the wilderness, God provided, as we know, quail and manna and drink. They were going to a promised land that was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And consider, fast forward to the New Testament and consider the ministry of Jesus, how much of the ministry of Jesus took place over food and drink. One of the great criticisms of Jesus is that he ate with sinners. So much so that he was miscategorized by his opponents as being a glutton and a drunkard. The conversion of Zacchaeus, short little rich guy, tax collector, happened over a meal. Jesus agreed with the Gentile woman who came to him and said, Jesus, what you're giving to Gentiles is crumbs and I'll take crumbs. The restoration of Peter happened over breakfast. Scholars say that the greatest messianic sign that Jesus ever performed was his feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus wanted to evidence his resurrection in front of the disciples, he asked for something to eat. He said, spirits don't eat. That Jesus had also come for the Gentiles is shown in his feeding of the 4,000. When Jesus talked about the word of God, he likened it to bread. Jesus called himself the bread of life and invited us to come to him and drink. One of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness was to turn stones to bread. When the prodigal came back to the father, do you know what the father did? He killed a fattened calf and had a feast. A feast that the older brother didn't attend. 
The first miracle of Jesus took place at a wedding feast where he turned 120 plus gallons of water into the best wine. Jesus likened the will of God in John chapter 4 to food. When the Gentile Pentecost came, it came and began with a vision of food given to Peter. When Paul rebuked Peter, he rebuked him because he wouldn't eat with Gentiles. The, the last hours of Jesus' ministry before his death took place over a supper where he told his disciples that he was the fulfillment of the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he took the wine and he said, eat and drink, eat and drink. This is my body and my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said earlier that our relationship with him is to be so all-consuming, it's like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And if you remember, lots of disciples left him at that point. To the church in Laodicea, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He equates salvation with dining together. And at his coming, all those in Christ will be gathered together at the wedding feast of the Lamb, which Isaiah 25 describes as a feast full of meat, meat full of marrow, and well-aged wine. And when the kingdom comes in its fullness, do you know what it's, what's going to be there? <laughs> the tree of life. Full circle. And you're probably going, okay, Funk, what's the point? Here's my point. God uses the ordinary to point to the extraordinary. And he loves to do it. He does it all the time in the Bible if you just look for it. He uses things here to point to things there. He uses things here to taste and see that the Lord is good. That includes all things, including ordinary things like food and drink, which Paul says in Colossians 2, serve as a shadow for things to come. Food and drink. Is it any wonder if this is all true, and I believe it is with all of my heart, is it any wonder then that one of the earliest heresies in the church included the instruction by false teachers to not eat certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving? Do you know what Paul called that kind of teaching? The teaching of demons. But what we also know as we put a capper on this series within a series, as, is that the kingdom is about more than food and drink. And, and, and food and drink are never to, to keep people from experiencing this, the extraordinary. 
Never choose the ordinary over pointing people to the extraordinary. And that's why sometimes we are called to fast. To not participate in something. So someone will be moved to Jesus. May our eating and drinking or whatever our freedom allows us to do never get in the way of people coming to Jesus or, or tear a, a brother or sister down. And may our eating and drinking never be void of bringing God, glory to God because he's the provider of it all. What do we have that we have not received? Every good thing comes from our Father of lights. And therefore, every bite this afternoon when you go out for lunch or go home for lunch and you have your tuna sandwiches, Eat it to the glory of God. You can eat and drink to the glory of God. So whether you eat and drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And why? Because this is the chief end of man. Let me pray. Would you rise as I pray, pretty please? <coughs> And, and so, Father, as we now respond to the teaching of your word, your word, written word to us, I pray um, for, for a change of heart for some of us, where the purposes that we see at the end of chapter 10 would be things that we want to do, and that we come to a point where we do them with joy, and, and that we would be people of faith who walk believing, yes, if I live like this, following the example of Christ, I will have fulfillment. I will have joy. I will have contentment. I will have satisfaction. For your promise to us is that when we give up these things, more Holy Spirit in us. That you will give us more of yourself. And that is better by far. So help us individually and corporately to want this more, fill us more, empower us more, change us, change our minds more and more into the mind of Christ. It is ours now in Christ, but it can get so muddied and distracting when we kind of look around the world. I am as guilty, if not more guilty in that than, than, than others here. I, I have no doubt about that. So help me help all of us in this so that you would be glorified so that the weaker brother and sister would be strengthened, so that those who are lost would come to be people who have been found in Christ. I pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.